Let me read our paragraph today and then we'll preach on it. Uh, The sermon titled, A Crucial Turn. So, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear and believe and obey it. The sermon title is A Crucial Turn. I saw the phrase used by Dale Ralph Davies in his commentary, and it really fits for this passage, A Crucial Turn. Not simply because Jesus is turning to Jerusalem, but it's crucial. And do you know the root of the word crucial? It comes from the Latin word crux, which is the word for cross. So something is is crucial when we think in terms of it being a cross. The dictionary would say it's the decisive point or the most important point at issue. The heart of the matter is another idiom. But a cross is a crossroads and a turning point. And a decisive one. Christianity is all about the cross. And in Luke's gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ, starting here at chapter 9, verse 51, the story turns, and all the way to chapter 19, roughly 10 chapters, Luke is speaking, and everything he shares about Jesus and presents in his gospel has the shadow of the cross over it. And what we find in this passage is not only how Jesus goes to save by going to the cross, but how he anticipates his disciples will follow his example. Because Jesus shows us that salvation is won and spread not by crushing sinners with fire from on heaven, or what other other force might be mustered, not by crushing them, but by suffering as servants of God for them. I suppose we could point historically to Martin Luther's theology, and it was dubbed a theology of the cross. The cross is at the center of Christianity, not simply because it points to what Christ did, but it points to the way the Christian lives. And I trust that God's word this morning will awaken us afresh to our need to take up our cross as we follow Christ and to do things God's way, not our own. Let's first look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ as presented here in Luke chapter 9. Verse 51 tells us that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And he gives us the countenance of a suffering servant. Countenance, boys and girls, is another word for face. It's a Bible word for face. His face was like that of not just somebody who was really determined. Not just one with a steady gaze at his goal. But there's something else this expression tells us about the face of our Savior. There's an Old Testament reference here. This phrase would have rung a bell instantly with the Jewish hearers, at least among them, of how it is used in the book of Isaiah, chapter 50. You're welcome to look. Isaiah 50, verse 7. In Isaiah 50, you find one of the many prophecies, well, at least four, about the Messiah who would be a suffering servant. A lot of Jews forget when the descendant of David who comes to be king, who comes to be Messiah, when he comes, there'll be some suffering involved. We're we're familiar with Isaiah 53, right? Well, Isaiah 50 includes verse 7. As the prophet back then was speaking about Israel's sin and how the suffering servant would nevertheless obey and suffer, To complete God's will. Verse 7 says this. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. The expression that Jesus uses. And the wording of it in Greek. It's it's one time in the New Testament. And it's particularly tying to this verse in the Old Testament because it's connected through the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And what this phrase, when when Luke uses it or records it, when Jesus uses it, tells us a couple of things. Jesus identifies with the suffering servant. He's the Messiah. That doesn't just mean he's king and everybody's going to fall down and worship him or else. But he is Messiah who is the suffering servant of Messiah. He will not be put to shame. He will not be disgraced even when he is abused. And by his stripes, we are healed. It also tells us how Jesus could face that suffering. I think it's a profound reference. That's why we're dwelling on it. He's not simply determined, but he is putting his faith in the God of Isaiah 50, verse 7. The suffering servant was speaking in Isaiah and said, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I set my face. Jesus as well shared that conviction. I have the promise of God. To be the suffering servant will not end in my crashing and burning or disgrace. But it will end in salvation. God's way will bring about the salvation of his people. So when Jesus uses this peculiar phrase and it triggers a remembrance of Isaiah 50, the voice of the suffering servant, see not only his determination on his countenance, but see also his faith in the Lord who puts this path of suffering before him. That's important. Jesus saw with both eyes what was coming. And he had confidence in the God who would bring him there. 
And where was he going? He was going to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Well, why Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city of God's king. he's, He's not going to Tel Aviv or Damascus or to Rome. He's going to Jerusalem. That mount, Mount Moriah, underneath the city of David, once where we believe Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then when David captured the city from the Jebusites, Jerusalem became the city of David. And that's where David brought the ark uh, and the tabernacle and where his son Solomon would build the temple. And it was there in Jerusalem where God dwelt with his people. And it was there from Jerusalem God departed when his people went into captivity. And then a temple was rebuilt. That city is Messiah's city. It would be the place where Jesus would receive a royal welcome when we get to chapter 19 on Palm Sunday. That city is where he goes. But it's also the city back in Jesus' day that was known for bloodshed. Not just by the hands of its Roman occupiers. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, as he begins speaking of uh, suffering and end times, begins speaking woes to wayward religious leaders. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus speaks with compassion. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus doesn't pick this destination because of a five-star rating on the internet. Jesus goes to this city to be the sacrificial son for the salvation of his people. Knowing that Jerusalem had a reputation for killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to it, he nevertheless would go. And he told his disciples as much. And and that's part of this crucial turning point to proceed to the cross. But notice what else verse 51 tells us. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. We have to come back to that phrase, to be taken up. Does that mean hoisted on the cross to be crucified? That's not exactly the verbiage that's used for lifting someone up on a cross crucified. That would be a different word group. But this taking up, this lifting up, that was more like what happened to Elijah in the Old Testament. When the Lord swooped down and took up Elijah. From the earth and he was gone. That take up. It's again used one time in the New Testament. It's a profound expression. It's looking ahead to leaving. As though Christ was looking past the cross. Towards his ascension. Here's a couple of terms boys and girls. We have to keep straight when we're studying the Bible. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. Was there three days in the tomb. And then what? The resurrection. Then Jesus walked around for 40 days. He was with his people for 40 days after the resurrection. But there was one more thing to happen. And we read about it in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, from a high point near Jerusalem, ascended into heaven. 
That's his taking up. Why clarify all this? Because Jesus, as he's going to Jerusalem and he's setting an example, we got to suffer. This is the way we're going to win, boys. I'm going to the cross. He sees not only the cross, but he sees the crown. He sees God's end game. He sees the fulfillment of God's promises to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It doesn't end with the cross. It doesn't end with the suffering servant. But with the risen and glorified and honored Lord Jesus. The cross and the crown are in view for Jesus. This phrase, to be taken up. They knew about the resurrection, but it sounds like Jesus has got something further in mind. This language that he uses. And again, we have just these brief accounts in the Gospel of Luke for what may have been discussed at length with his disciples in this season of traveling. You remember in terms of geography, and if you have a map in the back of your Bible, we're going to need that in a minute, so you might as well open to the map at the back of your Bible if you've got one. I hope they're still around. Jesus had been up in Galilee, and this turn to go to Jerusalem means he's going south kind of following the Jordan River on the West Bank, but he's traveling normal routes. But if he goes south from Galilee, he's going to have to pass through a region called Samaria, where the northern tribes had formed a northern kingdom. And you have to go through that to get to Jerusalem. And that will lead us to our next point. Reading again from Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, aha, to make preparations for him. So he's going to have to go that way. He sends some messengers, probably a couple of the disciples to go ahead and and set things up. Jesus does that maybe at the Last Supper when he says, go prepare the room and he does that. He's, he's organized. He's thinking ahead. You get a group of Jesus and 12 disciples and how many other dozen followers from Galilee are coming. That could challenge a small town on the road up ahead to provide hospitality. And they're going through Samaria, so Jesus is trying to be careful. Jesus once traveled through Samaria Back in John chapter 4, and I'm going to allude to that in a minute, and he was out at the well at the edge of town and had a conversation with a woman while the disciples went into town to get the food. They didn't all uh, stay at the well. What is it about the Samaritans that the people there, verse 53, did not receive him? What's going on between Samaritans and the Jews? Quick update and brief history lesson We try not to be long, but we have to think of Samaritans as historical, not just jump to the good Samaritan of the parable. The Samaritans historically were part of when David's kingdom divided the south, which was Benjamin and Judah. Those two tribes around Jerusalem were one kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes this area that goes all the way up towards Galilee and Dan, the further north tribe. So there were two kingdoms, and if you've read your Old Testament, you know there's two lines of kings. And when a time comes to go into captivity, the northern tribes go first. And the prophets in Jerusalem are saying, hey, you better shape up or you're going into exile as well. 
those northern tribes had their own capital city, the city of Samaria, that beautiful name. It was a beautiful place, not far from Mount Gerizim. And that's where they set up the center of their worship because if they weren't connected with the south, they didn't have access to the temple in Jerusalem. So they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. And not only was the capital city called Samaria, but eventually all the people of the region were called Samaritans by the time of Jesus. They also only had certain books of the Old Testament that they focused on. They didn't have other books, they just had favorite books. And this is perhaps the most common fact, they intermarried with Gentiles. Some point out when Alexander the Great came through and there was a great influx of Gentiles into the region, that's when many of them intermarried and they were no longer the Jewish race in the purity and the emphasis that they should have had. So the Samaritans had intermarried They had their own place of worship, and the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. And it seems to be that it was primarily the Jews that perpetuated the negativity. But there's two sides to every feud. We know that in John chapter 4, Jesus, being a devout and holy Jew as well as the Messiah, he spoke with a Samaritan woman at the well. She was shocked by that. She said in John 4, verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? That's what John's gospel reported. That animosity was there. And Jesus encounters that. And in this case, the village says what? They reject him. Verse 53. But the people in that Samaritan village did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They perceived he wasn't just a a tradesman or a, a passing by type of Jew. He was religious and he was going to Jerusalem on this on some sort of religious activity they perceived, and they didn't want that. They wanted their own version of faith to prevail don't come preaching around here they might have said and there's rejection you're going to Jerusalem well we're not housing you or helping you get lost rejection clear the Bible tells us according to Phil Riken he says it in a profound way apparently there was no more room for Jesus in Samaria than there had been in Bethlehem or that there would be in Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus. He comes to his own and his own received him not. Pretty common factor in his life. But no sooner is this rejection reported to us in verse 53. Verse 54. His disciples James and John saw it and they said. Lord do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Boom. Boom. We know you're the Messiah. They're not talking nice at all. Could be blasphemy. Burn them. Call in an airstrike from heaven. What are they thinking of? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. Where do they get such a notion? They're certainly filled with zeal. They 
believe who Jesus is. So they have a heart that wants to serve him and it's racing. And they're going to Jerusalem. They know there could be danger ahead. But they also know the power of God. And for some reason, they happen to be thinking of Elijah. Perhaps it's that taken up reference that Jesus used that perked their ears. And they've been talking about that. And the idea to use fire probably comes from their thinking of Elijah. You're welcome to look or just to listen. One example. There's at least two episodes in Elijah's life where fire comes down from heaven. And it's pretty spectacular. Um, We don't need to wait for Hollywood to make a movie. God's word tells us some pretty incredible action scenes. Earlier in uh, Kings, we read about Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that one? It says, we'll see whose God is real. Let's each have a sacrifice and see which one from heaven fire comes down and consumes. Prophets of Baal couldn't get no fire. They were shut out. Goose egg. No, nothing on their scoreboard. Elijah says, well, let's douse my sacrifice with water. And then fire comes down and not only wipes out the sacrifice, but it kills a lot of the prophets of Baal. Elijah and fire. You may have forgotten this one, though. At the very beginning of 2 Kings, I I had forgotten this. I told my wife, I had forgotten this story. What a great, uh, what an impressive display of power. Um, In 2 Kings chapter 1, the local king wants to talk to Elijah. Go get that prophet. I want to talk to him. So the king sends an officer with 50 troopers. And the officer and the 50 troopers, Elijah, you got to come with me and talk to the king. And Elijah, the prophet, calls down fire from heaven and consumes them. The leader and all 50 men, dead. The king sends another 50. Go get Elijah. I'm going to talk to him. And he goes, Elijah, the king wants to see you. He and his 50 men die on the spot, by fire from on high. Here's the language for that. Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Down in verse 13, again, the king sent a captain, this is the third time, of a third 50 with his men and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him oh man of God please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight behold fire came down from heaven and consumed the former the two former captains of 50 with all their 50s but now let my life be precious in your sight Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. It seems to be that there was a disrespecting of God and God's prophet. That fire was sent on those who were disrespecting. You know, if you've studied the Bible, maybe that was your devotions that day. And John and James are saying, didn't we just read that? Lord, this is a good time for fire. Call down fire. We'll show those Samaritan villagers. They can't push you around. You are the man of God. You are the Messiah. So that's what they're making these connections. Zealously and fairly earnestly. But it wasn't what Jesus wanted. And it wasn't appropriate. So Jesus gives a rebuke. 
No, John, James, no. No fire from heaven today. Where are your hearts, brothers? You can almost hear Jesus try to repeat to them his previous instructions, not from weeks ago. Well, we don't know the exact chronology, but it's right here in chapter 9. Do you remember when Jesus sent them out on their mission? Back up in chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus had instructed them what to do when you encounter some disrespect and disagreement. Luke 9, verse 5. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. He doesn't say anything about calling down fire to protect your honor, even though you're on a commissioned trip from me, the Messiah. Just do it this way. That's how you deal with not being received. They'd been instructed, but how quickly they forget. How quickly they let their zeal run ahead of them. Peter, James, and John had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the divine glory of Jesus. They saw Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Lord, time we deploy a little bit of that power. And Jesus says, no. The focus of the first coming of Jesus was on bringing the good news. Not yet the day of judgment. That day will come. No escape for anybody. God will see to that. But Jesus began the gospel era where he would bring good news and he commissions us to go with the good news and make disciples of all the nations, not to burn them to the ground. And far too many Christians are concerned in pummeling sinners instead of pleading and reaching them with the good news. There is this rebuke. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, and he was very unpopular. He was an evangelical. But evangelicals were a minority. A lot of liberals out there and nonsense out there, but he manifests this compassionate spirit. He comments on this episode. He says, Christ's kingdom was to be extended by patient continuance in well-doing and by weakness and gentleness in suffering, but never by violence or severity. I'm so thankful for J.C. Ryle, a biblically informed voice of reason for his day in the 1800s and for our day. Jesus would have to rebuke Peter in the garden. Put away your sword. That's not the way the kingdom comes. American Christians with our rich resources, with the power of a tweet or a post or a podcast, we can trash and burn so easily from the convenience of our home. But that's not what God wants. 
This rebuke is followed by Christ getting back on the road to the cross. He stays the course. He is determined and he sets that example for us because salvation is won and spread not by crushing sinners, but by being suffering servants. Christ, the preeminent, he's the only savior. But we follow our master in his way. No violence. If you're looking at a King James Bible, by the way, and you see a few extra words in verse 56, uh, there really aren't any Greek manuscripts to support those additional words. The best scholars have figured out that those words, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's life, was a scribal uh, insertion. And those who've studied manuscripts in the Bibles know how those things work. Something that's true from another part of the Bible often comes to mind and a copyist can put it in. But there are no manuscripts of ancient Greek Bibles that have those words. Let's move on to our final heading this morning. We saw first a a countenance convicted and determined to suffer. We saw a feud and misplaced zeal. Let's point out and dwell for a few minutes on the fullness of our Savior's love for sinners. The fullness of our Savior's love for sinners. His face remains set to go to Jerusalem, even if it means going by a different road. He wanted to go to this village, and that's what he planned. They reject him, so he backs out of there. If you happen to have a really good Bible map and system in the back, you might even see a map of this journey to Jerusalem, this final uh, travel of Jesus. He gets to Samaria. We don't know exactly which little village, but then all of a sudden he has to turn and he goes to the other side of the Jordan and then goes south and then comes back when he gets to Judea. He's, He's taking a longer road, but he stays the course to the cross. Let me tell you a couple of things too about Luke's gospel that will help us as we continue in it in the weeks ahead. We're only finishing chapter 9. And he's already setting his face to go to the cross. And and we've got a lot of material left. Have you noticed that? He'll get there in chapter 19, but Luke goes all the way to Luke 24. Because Luke will begin from this point on a whole new major section within his gospel where he presents a lot of material that Matthew, Mark, and John don't have. From now through chapter 19, 44% of the material is only found in Luke. Luke, by his diligent gathering, using his sources and the Holy Spirit's help, has brought to us some things that you won't find elsewhere. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, he has many things yet to teach them. It will be almost a year of traveling. We'll see that in that uh, section of Luke, he'll have 17 parables. 15 of them are only found in Luke. Luke is trying to convey to us what a God-centered, willing-to-suffer servant looks like, teaches, and emphasizes. Jesus would patiently teach in chapter 10, coming up soon, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We just had some 
uh, inhospitable Samaritans, we're going to hear about the good Samaritan. That's only found in Luke, right in chapter 10. That's profound for those disciples and for us. And as we get to the parables, for instance, chapter 15 of Luke is famous for three big parables. I hope you know that address, Luke 15. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We also call that the parable of the prodigal son. All three of those parables teaching us of compassion and earnestness in seeking for what is lost. Not condemning and crushing the lost. Jesus stays the course and Jesus continues to teach on his way to the cross. Lord willing, we'll see that as we go. But one of the things we ought to notice and underline before we move on is is this question, why not use power and fire from on high? What's wrong with that, Jesus? We saw a biblical example with Elijah. Why not now? The answer is simply in this call of Jesus to be the suffering servant Messiah. The day of judgment will come. And the Bible has a lot to say about the ferocity of that day. When sinners will cry out to rocks and mountains and hills, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of God. But this coming is handled differently. Jesus came to preach truth and to persuade many. When Paul would write to the Corinthians, he would use these expressions about our spiritual weapons. Not fire from heaven. And Paul had to contest with those Corinthians who wanted to do things their ways. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Hang on, that's not fire. The next verse. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ours is a ministry of proclamation. Ours is a persuasive engagement. Let me tell you, this Jesus who died is alive. This is what he said Listen to him. That's how Christianity goes forward. Not by the sword to conquer, but by truth. Faith comes by hearing and by the word of God preached and shared. And spiritual weapons are those used by God's suffering servants that we would do God's will in God's way to win the day. And here I wanted to add a further comment about John. Remember John and the, one of the two guys saying, let's bring some fire down from heaven? Oh, I really like John. I didn't realize he had that bent to him. John's like us. But John doesn't stay there. John is transformed by the work and power of God. The same gospel that saves us fits us for heaven. 
tenderizes us to be able to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And John, who wanted fire on that Samaritan village, I'm convinced John later went to that village in Acts chapter 8 when he went to Samaria. Don't know exactly that he went to that village. I bet he did. That's the way God works. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, so gospel's progressing, this is Acts chapter 8, what did they do? They sent to them Peter and John. And later on in Acts 8, verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That's a different John. That's a John filled with gospel love for the people of those places. Because he'd been changed to be more Christ-like. No fire from heaven. Just the truth, the powerful truth of the gospel to set people free. And it had taken root. Some at Samaria had received the word of God. And those apostles confirmed it. Well, in closing, let me point you to three things to focus on and take away. Number one, we need to resolve to suffer as needed. That's part and parcel of following Christ. Jesus is training up disciples. He's teaching them, modeling things for them. And he's doing the same for us. It's not that he's the suffering servant and we kind of just live a life of ease. No, we share in our Savior's treatment in the world. The servant is not above the master. Christianity has so many blessings and benefits. I never have a problem telling others to become a Christian. But it's not a bed of roses. It's more the Via Della Rosa. The way that Jesus walked. How can we resolve to suffer as needed? I'll just point you back to what we saw. Jesus knew Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah? That verse that uh, caused him to set his face like flint. Isaiah 50 verse 7. Maybe it needs to be a memory verse or at least you've got to underline it. Isaiah 50 verse 7 said, The Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. Because God helps us. He's promised. He's with us. That's the confidence that enables us to face suffering. Second exhortation here at the end, beware of untempered zeal. This could be a whole sermon, but I'll just be very brief. Zeal is what we need. I would love to see a little more zeal here today. Let it out. But beware of untempered zeal. Beware of a zeal without knowledge of when and where and how to deploy. I tried to be clear. I think uh, John and his buddy were, were thinking with all the right intentions when they asked for fire. They were defending Christ's honor. They had a biblical precedent, they thought. And now, should we pull the trigger now? It was zeal that was untempered and not wise. <clears throat> Of course, the Jews of Jesus' day, that was the norm. 
In Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 10, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not for the right things. Paul was once among them as Saul of Tarsus. He was persecuting Christians. He would testify in Philippians 3.6, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. That's zeal without knowledge, persecuting the work of Messiah through Christians. A lot of zeal, but in the wrong direction, Saul. Beware of untempered zeal. Perhaps these words from Romans 12 will help us. Romans 12, as it turns to the practical matters, Paul wrote to those Christians in that very difficult city, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Have him over for dinner. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Paul learned what Jesus was teaching. Beware of untempered zeal and overcome evil with good. That's our final point. Cultivate that Christ-like compassion for sinners. Yeah, those Samaritans were being rude. They were wrong. But Christ would die on the cross so that many of them could be forgiven. That's Christ-like compassion. As we go with these disciples on this journey to Jerusalem in the next few chapters, we will hear in Luke 10, verse 33, in the midst of the parable of the Good Samaritan, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus will teach us To be like the Good Samaritan and have compassion. Luke 15, verse 20, the parable of the prodigal son, which is only found in Luke. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The prodigal son! Do you have prodigals? Do you have Christ-like compassion for them? Because as we've seen today, salvation is won and spread not by crushing sinners, but by God's suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who follow in his footsteps. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that your word in all its blazing truth would burn away the dross and refine our faith and our practice of our faith. May we not be edgy, violent Christians. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Fill us with compassion. Make us more and more Christ-like that until the day of judgment comes, we might suffer all for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.